The weekend of December 2nd saw the return of the annual Rhode Island Author Expo. Citywide host Max Bowen was there to not only emcee the event, but interview some of the great writers. Kicking off this episode is Nishita Roy Pope to talk about her new book, Courage Kids, The Magic Soccer Ball. It's her debut book, and we look at how her background in business and as a diversity leader helped prepare her for this new role. And joining me now is one of the many, many authors you can reach, uh, um, uh, you can meet there. Her name is Nashita Roy Pope. Nashita, welcome to the show. Good thank to have you, you thank here. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Okay. So let us talk about your new book. This one has just come out. It's called uh, Courage Kids, The Magic Soccer Ball. Yes. What is this one all about? Yeah, so this is an early reader chapter book designed for kids ages 7 to 9. And really, the focus is on this magic soccer ball, which when this group of kids who didn't know each other, they become friends. When they touch it, all of their dreams um, are unlocked. They live in a place called Boringville, as you can imagine, <laughs> not a lot happening. Uh, and they believe that there's more to the world. They're really curious. They want to leverage technology. They want to try new things. Um, and so the Courage Kids is all about their adventure to help transform Boringville into a place that is fun, um, exciting, and where kids are really encouraged to embrace their curiosity and creativity. Okay, now normally I do ask about the world building, but I get the feeling for Boringville this was a pretty like simple task. The, the what building? Uh, the world building. The world building? Yeah. What is world building? Like building, your, building the world of your book. Building the world of my, oh yeah yeah, yeah Boringville is like like you think of like Pleasantville like everything's the same it's gray all the houses are the same all the cars are the same like everything is just done the way it's always been it sounds terrible yeah it sounds terrible yeah, especially I hate it immediately especially if you're a kid right yeah. like that is not where you want to grow up okay so uh, so how do the kids go about making the world not Boringville so they discover this secret passage inside of their school it they enter into a place called the chicka flicka zoom zoom and you know (laughs) i love that it's perfect yeah and so this magical world there's technology it's colorful it's vibrant um, and it's really this exciting place but it's a secret place that they enter into and they are told there that if they unlock this power of this magic soccer ball they can save their town so the, the problem is if they do not get enough people in the town to touch the magic soccer ball, unlock their imagination, the town will vanish and disappear forever. So it's on these group of five kids to use their teamwork and adventure skills uh, and persuasion skills to get all of the people of Boringville who do not want to change to be willing to do this so that they can save their town. Okay, uh, tell me about the kids. Who are they? Yeah, so there are five kids. They're all in different grades. And the intent was that they're really different from each other. They don't know each other. But this common event, their common curiosity, brings them together and unites them. So they range from a kindergartner uh, to a a fifth grader. Um, But they have kind of, all of them have their quirks, individuality. I was really intentional in making sure kids are diverse so that kids of all backgrounds can feel seen and represented um, in them. So you can see here the the kids, they all got like kind of funky, cool clothes <laughs> and like big hair and you know, one's got like big blue spikes, but all of them are just a little bit outside the norm of what is in Boringville. And you can understand why they're so 
eager yeah. to change things because they all know that their individuality is is a superpower. Okay, uh, let's uh, um, let's talk about diversity because sure. this is a big part of your book, and, yeah. you, and you're also hosting a panel later today called Representation Matters. I am. What is the importance of maintaining diversity in your works? Yeah. So when I started on the journey of becoming an author. I, so I have two little kids, and when they were even younger, I was looking for books for them to read. And I was disappointed in myself, in what I had in my house, that there was very few who looked like my kids. So I'm Indian, my husband is black and Native American and Cape Verdean. We have four different cultures intermixed in our own household. And I had one book out of 50 in my home when my youngest you know, was a small child that looked like my kids. So I knew that I have to... I knew I had to do it for my own house, but then I looked at the data, and there's very few diverse characters of color as protagonists in books. There's very few authors of color, and so it's really important to me that kids of all backgrounds can see themselves. And I wasn't doing that in my own home. The industry shows that we still have a very big gap, and so this is my way to make sure that kids feel seen, feel heard, in the characters and that also myself as an author of color is contributing to show that people who look like me belong in uh, this industry and deserve to have our voice shared as much as other people. Do you feel like the industry is in a good place when it comes to representation or is there more work to do? No, I do not think the industry, it, when you look at the, who works at publishers, we're not in a good place. When you look at authors, we're not in a good place. When you look at the characters, no, we're across the board, we're not. There has been improvement, no doubt. However, um, to me, I would say, I'll say it's insignificant to what the potential of, of our world. We have uh, six billion people in this world. We have vibrant diversity. The fact that still a very small percentage of books are written by and representing uh, characters of color in particular. Yeah, I, I would say we have a lot of work to do. How do we fix the problem? How do we like get more representation in the industry? Yeah, that's a great question. So one is for people who are watching, if you have something to share, a message, like have the courage to write the book. Uh, two, if you are making a purchase decision, right now the holidays are coming up, this is a good time to think about what are you going to give to your grandkids or nieces or nephews or whoever, instead of, you know, that toy that they're going to play with for five minutes, why not get a book and why not be intentional about the books you're bringing into the homes of your loved ones. Um, and then the other part is, is the industry. We have to put more pressure on the overall industry to understand that there's still bias, that there's still groups who are not being included. Uh, one of the things in my prep for the panel that you mentioned, so I asked yesterday, you know, what are one of the, what's one of the reasons, what's one of the myths around diversity in, in literature overall? And um, it was really interesting that both of the authors shared a similar message that people think that if there's diverse characters or a diverse author, that only people who look like them or, or who associate with them can resonate with the message or buy it. And, and that also correlates to the publishing, the marketing efforts, right? Like you might say, oh, this is like a really niche book that only, I can only market to like a small segment of the population. Like I would say this is a book for inspired kids to be confident and courageous and creative and curious. You know, it just happens to have diverse characters, but it's not limited. The message is a message that's universal. But the representation is something that we, you know, can really emphasize. But there's a lot of bias in how much um, 
resources we put behind uh, books that are considered diverse, right? People think they only can touch a, a small segment of the market. I understand, okay. Um, all right, so let's talk about this being your first book. And I love talking to debut writers okay. because the big question is what got you here that, uh, that you said, I want to write a book? Yeah, so it really was that moment, you know, becoming a parent, seeing my own lack of representation in my own house and understanding. I have also a skill set. I have a background in, I worked in um, big companies. I worked in marketing for a long time. A lot of my business role was storytelling and getting people to resonate with a, a corporate type of message. So I said, you know, if I can do this for global audiences all over the world in my business career, I already have that creative skill set, the storytelling skill set. Why not do it for kids? Because I believe if we can fundamentally um, change how kids see themselves in the world, like all the problems that follow will get removed, right? We won't have so many issues. We'll have stronger, stronger self-esteem. Um, we'll have kids who are more willing to take risks. We'll have kids who are more innovative. We'll have kids who are willing to study hard things like math and science. You see drop-offs in those kind of areas later on, especially from girls and kids of color. So my hope is that um, I have to do it for my own kids. I have the skill set that I can do it for many, and that I truly believe if we can do this properly, that we will change an entire future generation of kids and how they show up every day in the world. Okay, uh, was it hard for you to do this, especially given that your background is in business, mm -hmm. which isn't always like the most um, uh, creative place to be? Yeah, um, I have a lot of respect for people who write books. I will say writing this age group was easier for me because one, I, I have now a kid who's seven years old. He's like totally in this, so I re, I'm reading with him every night. I kind of know uh, the structure and like what he likes. I'm always asking him like, why did you like this book? Why did you not like this oh. book? What did you learn from this book? You know, what characters did you like? I'm always, I'm always, I have my like little built-in uh, focus group in my house. Nice. <laughs> uh, so I study a lot his level of engagement and, and what he wants. Um, but again, I have the skill set. I've worked in marketing for a long time so not it wasn't like super hard to be creative because that like I have that part of my brain that's just maybe been a little bit quiet for some time this was a chance to unlock it okay I'm curious as to what your kids told you with regards to what kind of books they don't like so my my older son he's really into sports so his challenge to me was mom can you write a book about sports so there's soccer ball, that's a central theme, but I snuck in like all the other stuff I know kids need to learn. But for him, he's got a complete buy, if it's about anything about sports, he's like locked in. And so I really learned that kids are, when they're passionate about something, they're more likely to be engaged. So my hope with this, this book, that is the first of a series, but maybe the next one is about uh, submarines. Maybe the next one is about space. Maybe one's about dinosaurs. So that eventually, kids will be able to resonate, maybe not with all of them, but maybe there'll be one that gets them hooked, and then they'll be more willing to entertain the rest of the series. But maybe there's one theme that really um, attracts them. Okay. Um uh, dinosaurs in a submarine in space. It could happen. Like, why not? It's like, it's just, 
but you can do anything in a book. I yeah. think that's the beautiful thing, right? Is or is there a certain like area you try to stick to when it comes to like writing your books as opposed to just going like all over the place? So the core, I would say, is the I, I try to bring a lot of technology elements into the story because again, I want kids to. It is part of their generation. It is part of their future. So for them to understand that it can be used as good, that it has value, that they are allowed to play a role in designing it. So the STEM, which is science, technology, engineering, math, focus um, is a very big part. And then the diversity part. And then the the book, you know, there has to be some like drama, adventure. There has to be some hardship, right? That's always a good, sure. a good story. Uh, one other thing that I've done in these books is I put a quiz at the end of each chapter, which is great because it helps the kids pause. My son, he said, Mom, this is so awesome because you put a pause in the book, which I, like, he liked, I, I was like, you know, he's going to be mad that I'm, like, making him, like, you know, take a quiz. But he didn't see it as a quiz. He saw it as a chance to see how well, he's a competitive, like, how well did I understand? And one of my, um, someone else who bought it who's got two twin girls, she told me the same, that her two twin girls were, like, fighting over who could answer the questions right. Wow. And my husband's a teacher, so when he read it, he said, you know, this totally aligns with how I would teach a class, because we would introduce a topic, but then we would pause for retention and making sure people really understand before we moved on. So this is helping to re, I think it's going to be an easy integration into the classroom because not only has so many good like messages that align with school, but I also have built in a learning mechanism that most books this age do not have. Wow. So this one definitely took a lot of planning. Um, Did you have to do any kind of um, uh, pivots when it came to the actual writing process? So... Yes, because even when we first started talking, right, like I, I had a completely different name for this book, right? When, like, we just figured that out <laughs> right, a few minutes yeah, ago. Right, yeah, saw that. Um, so definitely pivots have happened in the characters, um, the plot line. But, but for the most part, I think, although I sat down to write this a few months ago, literally, I think the concepts have been baking for a long time because a lot of the work that I do in my my regular life as an entrepreneur is focused around giving young people the skills to thrive in the future. That is what I do for my full-time job. So for me, this is just a chance to show that inside of a book. Okay. Uh, so yeah, it's just, I feel like this is just a, a very nice, tangible thing that relates to what my purpose in this world already is and it's a chance for me to put it into something that's um, easy for people to consume and hopefully exciting for them. Okay. Now I know that a big part of this of course is promoting yourself. You have to market your book, you have to get yourself out there, do the signings, do the events. Did you feel like you were like ready for that because you have the business background? Nope. No. Shaking her head, no. <laughs> well, so I'm like looking around here at this awesome event that we're sure. at, and I'm like, oh, like I need like this kind of promotion. This person's yeah. got such cool. But what's awesome about this event and and trade shows like this is that you you have all of these authors who are so different. Uh, we can learn from each other. There's just a general community of exchange here, which I really appreciate. Um, I'm learning. Again, I know what it takes in general to market, but I have to, what's interesting about kids' books, you want kids to be excited, but the buyer is the parent, or the grandparent, yeah. or the school, right? So it's like really interesting, because the kid has to say, like, I'm, I want this, but they're not the one paying the money. 
So it's a very um, nuanced way that we have to position it. Um, but I'm, I'm definitely learning, trying to start using my social media more mm. for this. I uh, took up our, our neighbor here who's sitting at the event, um, had a author showcase, daily show. So I submitted for that. I'm, I signed up for this podcast, even yep. though I just released this book like <laughs> two weeks ago. I was like, you know what? Like, we're going to go for it. Exactly. So I think part, you know, Courage Kids is about having the courage to do hard things, new things, bold things. And I have to stand by that myself to promote it. I can't write a book about having courage and like be sitting in the shadows. You definitely cannot, which though I feel is the biggest challenge because writing can be so like um, uh, isolating. Yeah. And then you have to be out there and talking to folks and that can be hard. Yeah. Especially if you're not the most like, outgoing person out there. Yeah, the, it, it can be. And the good thing is I've had a ton of experience over, again, I have this very vast corporate career, entrepreneur career. So I've been on big panels. I've done a TEDx talk. So I'm not um, a stranger to sharing my message broadly. I think the hard part is talking about yourself. Sure. Right? Like that is a little bit awkward always, but a lot of my, I do a lot of coaching for professional people and it's about just leaning into that discomfort uh, because ultimately I know the purpose of why I wrote this book is important. So if that means I have to be awkward and uncomfortable <laughs> and work through that for the greater good of what I'm trying to do, like then it's worth it. Okay. So what is next for you? Is there going to be another book? I hope so. So <laughs> you know, I put like so I put like the number one on the. Oh. You know, so I feel like either this is the only book ever, and it's like a very you know um, rare find. Right. It's a one-off. And, you, and you're forever searching for the you know the rest or no. But my hope is that early next year there can be a two and a three coming soon. So I'm. Let's see if people are receptive. Right, this is a test in many ways. Let's see if we sell, if people give good feedback. You know, let me, I need to hear from kids. They can tell me what's good, what's not good, what we, should we change? Should it be like the dinosaur in space, blah, 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 or, work. or something it else? It could work. Right, I found kids are awesome sources of ideas. Oh, yeah. So part of my next process is to f have them go through it, give me their really candid feedback. Um, and then make the, the next versions. You know what? Get your sons, all their friends, yeah, put them totally. in a room and say, okay, what do I do for this one? Totally. I'm going to be like number one mom. Get all together and read. <laughs> They're gonna... And then you can play outside. Exactly. There you go. All right. But um, uh, before we go, let us talk about the art. Because, of course, it's sure. absolutely amazing. Yeah. Who, who is the mind behind this? Yeah. So the artist is a guy named Chris Hilaire. So you can see, like, really beautiful um, artwork. He is from Rhode Island originally. Cool. Yeah. He's a URI alum. Young guy. He now lives in Connecticut. And I got connected with him uh, because of Stillwater Press, mm -hmm. who yep. is a big supporter of our Rhode Island authors. Um, I approached when I Stillwater published my book and when I approached them about this whole process I said you know I'd like an illustrator but then I said I would really like an illustrator who is diverse I think part of me standing for this mission is living it fully and so they connected me with Chris Hilaire um, who's really talented artist very uh, was very receptive to my feedback and making changes but also putting his own like really create stuff that I would never have thought of. The way he approached it was really awesome. So I would recommend Chris. Um, and if you're 
you know, going through a, a publisher or, or printing service, like they have connections to really talented people. So I would recommend leveraging those relationships to uh, find your next illustrator. Excellent, excellent. Well, Nishita, thank you so much for joining me. I thank really you. appreciate it. But where do folks go to learn more about you and get the book? Yeah, it's available on Amazon right now. So check it out. It's only $9.99. Um, please leave a review. Up next, Ann Watt channels 30 years as a critical care nurse into her memoir, When Being a Nurse Was Fun. We go into what nursing was like pre-COVID and how the pandemic changed everything. I am chatting with Ann Watt to talk about her memoir, When Being a Nurse Was Fun. Ann, thanks for talking to me. I really appreciate it. All right, so I'm curious as to what made you want to write this book in the first place. Well, actually, I had a different manuscript, which I brought to my publisher, Stephen Porter, at Stillwater Books. And upon uh, discussing our contract, we just went on a tangent, and he started speaking about some of the best books that are out there are published from an author's personal experiences. You should write about what you know. So on the drive home from his bookstore that day, I thought, what do I know better than being a nurse? So that's when I decided I wanted to write my memoir. But almost immediately, I knew I did not want to write about COVID-19. Yeah. Uh, it's been in the media so much. Sure. Um, and I think nurses needed a little change of pace, not to lessen the importance of COVID-19 and what those nurses are going through, but to uh, let them remember why they went into the nursing profession in the first place. So it's a book about our colleagues, our patients, many of whom do not behave so well, but who doesn't when they're ill. Uh, and not the, me. <laughs> and just the, I want to write about the nursing humor that's out there. Nurses have their own brand of humor. What is that brand? Because the notion of nursing and humorous don't always go together. No, I totally understand that. But to deal with stress, we find humor in any and every situation, especially in critical care where uh, the intensity of the patients is so high. So we can laugh about uh, certain situations, body fluids, uh, we play jokes on each other. <laughs> exactly. I know things that other people might find a little distasteful. Uh, a bit, yeah. <laughs> just a little bit. A little bit. But uh, certainly, we had our fun, especially on the night shift, where we had a lot of autonomy, and my entire career was spent on the night shift. Okay, what happens on the night shift? Because I have heard some things. Well, we definitely do not sleep at night. Uh, I didn't think so. No. Uh, some people uh, believe in the full moon theory that the craziest things happen on the night shift at that time. But uh, patients don't always sleep. If they're intubated and they're sedated, sure. well, they're going to sleep. But contrary to popular belief, it's just as busy as any other time of the day. Okay. Uh, now, how long were you a nurse? I was a critical care nurse for a total of 30 years. Oh, so you must have all kinds of stories. I have tons of stories. Um, I'm already thinking about writing a sequel to this current book. Was it hard to kind of take out, um, was it hard to like um, uh, choose like which stories to go with for this book? It, it was, and unfortunately when this was already in publication, I kept remembering more and more stories oh, no. that I wish I had included. Oh, yeah. But the beauty of writing is you can keep on writing. 
coming, and there will be a book two, hopefully in the near future. Okay. What are some of the highlights included in, in, the, in, in this book? Oh, my. There's... I've often thought about that question, Max. Right. That if I had to choose a favorite story or one or two, it's so difficult. We, we made fun of residents, unfortunately, the doctors. Sometimes our pranks were on them. Uh, sometimes they were on each other. Uh, it's really hard for me to say. Uh, I had a, a Christmas miracle that happened one time. There, there are some touching stories as well. What's the, uh, uh, the miracle? The miracle was that there was uh, a young gentleman who came home from uh, college and he met up with some of his friends. And unfortunately, he was an insulin-dependent diabetic. And I don't know exactly what happened, but when he, his mother found him in the morning, he was comatose. And he was comatose for about a week leading up to Christmas. And even though his uh, laboratory values were normal and everything seemed good, his vital signs were good, he didn't wake up. But then miraculously, on Christmas morning, he did wake up out of his coma. We were able to take his breathing tube out, and wow. mother and son were reunited and able to speak to each other. Aww. And he was totally coherent. He wasn't neurologically damaged. Wow. So it was while we were actually listening to some Christmas music and the, the Pope's belated uh, broadcast yeah. on uh, TV that we saw that. And there, there wasn't a dry eye in the ICU that morning. I, mean, I what, can't imagine. What better gift could a mother receive on Christmas? Exactly. So I consider that a, a miracle, and it was my pleasure being able to take care of this young man who was in his early 20s. Okay. Um, so let's talk about uh, um, about the title, When Being a Nurse Was Fun. What is the significance of that? How does it sort of sum up the book? I think uh, a lot of people feel that nursing isn't a fun profession, especially not doesn't now. doesn't seem when, fun, no. Not, not now when we're dealing with a COVID pandemic. Sure. So the reason I want to title it that is I wanted uh, older retired nurses to rip, reminisce about the good old days when we didn't just have our faces in computers and we were doing charting all the time. We spent more time interacting with the patients. We had more time to interact with each other instead of being one-on-one -on -one in an isolation room where it was kind of every man for himself, man or woman for himself. And I know because my girlfriend is a doctor that charting is like the bane of your existence. It is. It is. You Absolutely. hate it with a passion. <laughs> Absolutely. Oh, in my uh, early years of being a nurse, it was paper charting. So oh, no. you could take care of the... Well, but it was good because you could take care of the patients first yeah. and then at the end of the shift you wrote as fast as you could and as <laughs> accurately as you could. But it's all about... Uh, you know, Medicare and insurance reimbursements nowadays, so you have to make sure every, you know, T is crossed, every yeah. I is dotted, and make sure that everything's as accurate and up-to-date as possible, but it does, it steals time away from your interactions with the patients. It does, it does. Let's talk about how COVID cha changed nursing. What was, like, the more, like, immediate impacts of this? I think, uh, some nurses left the profession. Sure, yeah. Uh, new nurses who were spending their first year as a registered nurse in the hospitals were just immersed into the stressful environment. And they, how could any nursing school or college prepare them for what they were about to encounter yeah. with this disease that some of the experts probably knew a lot about it, but most people didn't. And every day was uh, experimentation with new treatments or... You know, just a lot of fear that went along with that. And then, of course, dealing with the folks who thought they knew better, too. 
Exactly, exactly. And what was really stressful as well was the patient's families weren't allowed to visit. A lot of the hospitals were closed except at the end of life, sure. perhaps. Yeah. So uh, patients do rely a lot on their families to support them emotionally when the nurses are busy with perhaps their other patient or just providing comfort in some way. Now, as I understand, this is your first book, right? It is. Okay, so I, I love talking to first-time writers because oh, no. you, you get the best stories. Um, was it hard to say, okay, we're done with this thing, no more editing? It was, I, right? I, I think so. <laughs> I think so because you think you have a good story or deciding which stories at first to include or not include and to um, make it sensational enough to keep someone's interest. Sure, yeah. I, mean, I think a lot of the public are interested in what really happens in a hospital, especially on the night shift. Yeah. Uh, so that part wasn't difficult, but the hardest thing for me actually was the marketing. I love Right. Marketing. Oh my God, the marketing is... <laughs> Marketing is the one thing that you never are really like um, are ready for because yeah, like you got to do like the, so the the social media thing. You got to do the events. You got to talk to people. Okay. Well, I don't mind talking to people because being a nurse, that sure, was yeah. one of my favorite things. Although being in an ICU, a lot of my patients were intubated, so the conversation was one <laughs> way. So Max, you know, there you go. Yeah. Now I actually have to listen to people in each other. Oh. No, but I love meeting people at events like this. This has been a great day. I was recently at the Situate Art Festival and yeah. the Big E in West Springfield. I love the Big days. E. I yeah. actually live in Western Mass, so the Big E has become familiar to me. Well, that's what I was curious about, Max, because I grew up in South Deerfield, Massachusetts. East Hampton. Excellent, excellent. I went to Fitchburg State University. Okay. But um, I... Born and raised in South Deerfield, and uh, I love that area. And originally, I lived on the South Shore in in um, in Hanover, so not too far from Situate. Oh. So weird connection here we got we got going on here. Yeah, the Situate Situate. Right, right, right. <laughs> um, what do you tell people when they ask what the book's about? How uh, how do you kind of bring this down to like one sentence? To one sentence, um, it's a book to honor nurses, and I hope I'm a good ambassador for the nursing profession by um, telling it like it is. Okay. Um, how about, uh, well, um, in your stories, do you ever like name like other nurses or doctors you worked with? Most of the names have been changed in the book, but a few of them are the more favorable stories, uh, the ones that are more uh, will touch your heart. I do use real names in there. Oh, okay, okay. All right, um, so what is next for you? Uh, besides uh, a book two, yep, yep. Uh, the original manuscript that I had worked on is a Christ Christian inspirational book. Nice. I, I want to publish that, but I'm also an avid hiker. Okay. So I'd like to write a hiking book for middle-aged people such as myself. <laughs> nice, And nice. also uh, a book about Alzheimer's disease. Wow. Did you ever think you would go like into writing? I had always hoped I would. Really? Uh, yes. When I was in eighth grade in junior high school, I was studying poetry in English class, and I thought, wow, I could write poems. So I went home and I tried, and they were horrible. I mean, <laughs> seriously, I was thinking, you know, five, ten, twenty lines, how difficult can it be? Well, 
it wasn't as easy as it looked. Sure. So I kind of put my writing dreams and being a published author, that went on the back burner. I decided I better focus on becoming a nurse. But after 30 years of accumulating so many life experiences, now I actually have things to write about. Do you still have the poems? Do I have uh, the poems? Uh, do you just do you uh, still I have, have those? I have one of them. Oh, because because every writer has a story that they say this was terrible. It'll never see the light of day. I'm gonna bury it with me. I do have it. I found it because um, there was a very touching note that one of my patients had written to me and given to me early in my career, and I was actually searching for that in a okay. book of treasures uh, that I keep, and I stumbled upon that poem. I said, I can't believe I still have this. Okay. <laughs> Well, Anne, uh, it's been great talking to you. Same and thing. for the folks at home, though, where do they go if they want to learn more about you and get the book? I do have a website. It's annewattauthor.com. That's A-N-N-W-A-T-T author.com. It will bring you to a Facebook link if you're sure. interested in seeing that. But I have my books on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, as well as several other websites. Those are the two most notable. And the book is also available at a few local bookstores as well, including Stillwater Books in West Warwick and Wakefield Books, as well as American Bookstore. Excellent. Keith Guerrero is no stranger to the show having been on before to talk about his nine-part series, The Immortality Wars. He's now four books into the series with the release of The Pilgrim, and we look at how the story has advanced. My next guest really needs no, really needs no introduction, but I kind of have to because otherwise we can't move on with this thing. So Keith Guerrero joins me. He's been on the show numerous times for his very long-running fantasy series. Keith, welcome back, man. Great to have you Thanks, here. Thanks, Max. Always good to be here. All right. So when we last spoke, you were, I think, three books into your um, uh, nine-part Immortality War series. The Penitent was the first trilogy, and now you're on to a new one called The Pilgrim. Yep. Which you have right here. So, so this is part one of the new trilogy. Am I correct in that? That's correct. Okay. Where does this pick up when the last trilogy ends off? Okay. The third book uh, ends with the major, a major character, Paul Warren, in the middle of a, uh, a battle in the city. Yep. And uh, it's a tumultuous ending, and you're not sure what happens. Mm -hmm. As a matter of fact, I don't even think. The main character understands what happens. So the fourth book picks up from there and he's going, he goes through something like a, I don't know how else to describe it, an interdimensional change. Okay. Okay. But what is actually happening is the first trilogy, you think you're in the Middle Ages, but you're not. You're in the middle of a scientific experiment taking place in the 26th century. So he's actually being transformed out of that experiment. Yep. And he's going into the reality of that, of the, where the scientists are. I read that. So, so he basically dies, or thinks he does, and then wakes up 500 years in the future. Actually, it's 16 centuries. Okay, so it's a lot yeah. more than that. Yeah. Um, all right, so, so, so what's his reaction? He kind of wakes up and realizes kind of what's going on. He, he doesn't get over that because right. it, the events overtake his capacity to keep up a, a linear sense of thought sure. and a cognition about what is happening to him. So it just, one thing keeps happening to him after another and it really tests his uh, mettle, so to speak. Okay. How does he keep from just going nuts? 
That's a great question. He's trained sure. to handle chaos. Okay. And he's trained to be able to put that kind of um, doubt, trepidation, uh, to box it, to categorize it, to put it in, in, a, in a box so that he doesn't have to think about it because he's in the middle of a war-torn situation. And the people in the 26th century, a variety of them, look at him in different ways. Some think he's a, a, a villain. Mm -hmm. Some people think he's a, a hero. Mm -hmm. Some people think he's the answer genetically to uh, the quest for immortality. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Now, we've talked about this a couple times. I want to ask about world building, because this is obviously a very complex story. How much time was spent just putting the world together before you decided, okay, now I'm actually ready to write this thing? That's a great question, too. So, in 2014, I started writing the first trilogy. Uh, it was actually May I started, but I spent the month of uh, March and April researching and thinking about that particular setting for the first trilogy. For The Pilgrim, I spent six months just researching and, and idea building for, uh, in other words, so what's the 26th century going to look like, right? So I had, I had to make a supposition of, uh, of uh, what would happen if, uh, if the science did not slow down and it kicked in and it was based on quantum engineering. So every degree of uh, increase is 10 times greater than the previous one. Mm -hmm. So the, it, in the end of this book is a chart it's a scale of technological development, and it starts two million years ago, Jeez. and it goes up to 2562. Damn, dude. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So, so uh, there's, a, there's a Russian woman who is since deceased, Baba Yaga or something? Yep, yep. Yeah, and she has had uh, predictions that go up, I think, to the quite a while. Okay. And so I was saying, I, I'm going to put this, I'm going to put my my Baba Yaga hat on and see okay. what I can do in, in this regard. Yeah. Now, when it came to this, did you did you go through a lot of refinement where you said, okay, this actually doesn't work anymore, or I just don't like this. We're gonna swap it out and try something else. All of that was in the was in the was in the pre-writing stage. Sure. You have to go through that. Okay. Good. That's, good. That's what gave I think credence that this is this has a reality to it that really grabs people. Sure. I've, I've had four editorial reviews on it and they're smoking. Nice. Yeah. Okay. Um, so where is the story going to go with this new trilogy? Without any spoilers. Paul is going to come into his own in this particular setting. Okay. But this, this series is based on a, something a Russian term called matryoshka, okay. which is a nesting doll. Okay. So you have a doll within a doll within a doll. So my idea or thought about what's around us is that we live in multiple realities. Okay. And when I, I also part of the research I did was looking at what physicists are saying about our reality, and there are some physicists who are saying and philosophers are saying that we live in a simulation. Ooh. I like this. Yeah. So, uh, the simulation that he finds himself, he's not in, he's not in that experiment anymore. Okay. He begins to realize that he's, he, he thought he might be in heaven 
or he might be in another Valhalla or something different. He's not sure if he died. He doesn't have the, he doesn't have the time to reflect on that, but he, he starts to adjust to this reality and his fighting skills take over. And he, he has, he's also brought, I don't know if you want to say the magic and the skill set that the scientists gave him, okay. he's brought that into this world. Okay. So despite the fact that the humans are enhanced, yep. and he's dealing with um, entities that are also created, creatively uh, and scientifically enhanced, machine, sentience, mm -hmm. intelligence, um, he's able to deal with it. I would find it hard to believe that someone from the 16th century could last more than like four seconds yeah. in a futuristic world, but how does he survive? Be because of the, because he's not really from the 16th century. Gotcha, okay, okay. Or the, or the 9th century. All right, Yeah. all right. He's an experiment and the scientists did not realize what they created. Oh, uh, okay. All right, so moving on uh, with like the world building, you actually have a panel here today at the expo, which is all about like mind mapping, right? Correct. Okay. What? Uh, what did you see? The mind maps that were created. Yeah, was, yeah. Uh, so otherwise, I couldn't keep it all straight. Yeah. So, um, what's this one all about? This book here? No. Uh, uh, the oh, panel. The presentation. Yeah, yeah. The panel. Um, from 1982 to 92, I was at Harvard's Graduate School of Education, and they let me uh, <laughs> they let me study creativity. They let me put together my own uh, package. Sure. Uh, I had to take certain core courses, um, but they let me put together course, coursework that would enhance my understanding of creativity and critical thinking. And I okay. took three courses at MIT because they had a reciprocal relationship with Harvard. As a matter of fact, ten, I think there's 10 colleges and universities that do that with one another. So um, part of that work on creativity, uh, I was able to come up with tentative conclusions on what one can do to enhance creativity. So mind mapping is a piece of that. Oh, okay. All right. How has that helped you as a writer? Um, I used to try to write stories without um, planning them. Okay. Just, oh, boy. Just, you know, let's just spill it out. And I only would get so far. So... Uh, I remembered something. I went to school with Stephen King. You mentioned that before. Yeah, and I re and I had to re I had to actually when I went on his blog site to see how he was doing. He's doing okay, you know. <laughs> yeah, this was in 2014, and what he was saying in that particular blog post, he had told me over 50 years ago. It's, it's it took me 50 years to figure this out, Max. I'm a little slow. It's a good thing I have some longevity here. There you go. Yeah, he basically said uh, he writes 2,000 words a day uh, with four days off. Oh. Um, and so I said to myself, okay, so I can't write 2,000 words. I'm not Stephen King. Um, I, I can't do that. So I said, what about 1,000? No, 500 I can do. So I said, okay, so now I can, I can, that's a goal I set myself. I said, but I got to, how am I going to do this? So I start, I, I, I remembered my work at Harvard. I said, I should apply it to, you know, physician, heal thyself. And so, so I, st I started applying it to 
uh, effective pre-writing strategies and I started storyboarding it. Mm. And I started creating the mind maps. And so when I started writing, I would have on the computer screen, I would have the narrative. And just below the narrative were, were the storyboard cues. And I just followed the cues, and I was able to, to write like crazy. Nice, yeah. nice. And when I first started, it was, I hit 300 words for the day, Yeah. 400 words for the day. Eventually, I was writing between 1,000 and 5,000 words a day from May 26th to October 9th. So you're actually outpacing Stephen King? At one point, at some points, yeah. Nice, all right. Well, Keith, of course, the big question is, what is next for you? The fifth book. Fifth book. All right. Yeah. Uh, can you give us any hints without without giving away the ending? Yeah, I can show you a picture. Excuse the dead space. I know, right? Whatever can we talk about to fill this thing? That's her. All right. Can we please show that? Nice. Very cool. So Very that's cool. Evangel. She. That's going to be the cover for the fifth book. Excellent. And she's based on Joan of Arc. I like that. I yeah. like that. All right. Well, Keith, as always, great speaking with you. Thank and you, for man. the folks at home, you go to theimmortalitywars.com. It's all there. Buy the books, of course. And, Keith, I'm sure we'll be talking again very soon. Thank you, Max. Kelly Swan Taylor brings a little mystery to the show with her series, The Right Detective. Now, three books in. Tessa Wright is a seventh grade student who solves mysteries with her friends. We talk about the main character's creation, along with how her friends and father, also a detective, factor into the books. And I have the very good fortune of talking to Kelly Swan Taylor. She's the author of numerous uh, young adult books and a really cool new thriller, which of course we will talk about. Kelly, thank you for joining me and welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. So let's talk about the thriller because when I saw the cover for this, my initial thought was, do we have the right person here? Because it's, it's such a difference from like what you did before. Yeah. Um, and I'm gonna show the, uh, the folks at home here. This is your new book, Frozen in Time. I love the cover art. Um, thank you. Where did this one come from? The story or the cover art? Uh, the cover art. Let's start with that. Uh, the cover art was, uh, her name is Murphy Ray. I found her through, she actually does a lot of Colleen Hoover covers for people who know who that is. Um, and so I just liked what she did and I wanted to do something different with this cover that wasn't just illustration, that was uh, sort of an image manipulation. So I thought it would fit better with a darker theme of it's the It's very book. dark actually. Yes. It's very, very <laughs> yeah. dark. The symbolism, you, you realize how dark it is. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Give us a quick rundown as to what happens in this book. Okay, well, this one I would say is Upper YA. So yep. it's the, the protagonist, uh, his name's Summer Ellis. She's 16, and she grew up in a town called Winterberry, New Hampshire. When she was six years old, her best friend uh, tragically died in the, on a frozen pond. Oh, jeez. So she comes back 10 years later after they had moved away for you know, a while, and on her first day out with her dog Ace, a German Shepherd uh, rescue dog. She finds another. She finds a dead body in the ice, which is not an accident. Oh, jeez. So she basically spends the novel trying to figure out what happened because her mom is an a detective. So she, you know, has that blood in her, and uh, she meets a very good-looking uh, hockey goalie. So that kind of plays into it as well because you've got to have a little romance in a in a teenage story. So yeah. Why this particular age group? Like, why not do something more um, um, more for adults or just like or just, um, uh, kids' books? 
It's a good question. I think when I first started writing a novel, I would just naturally lean toward doing something that was younger. Sure. But uh, it probably is a combination of when I grew up, um, I was always reading these these teen series books when I was a kid. They were called teen books. Now they've kind of changed to middle grade and yeah. middle. But they kind of encompass that area between tween and teen. And so I was reading those a lot and anything from like sleepover friends or gymnasts and in sports, that type of thing. And I really, I think that that comes into my writing. But what I found too is that when I was first writing uh, The Winning Ingredient and uh, another book I have that I haven't put out yet, um, I went to the bookstores to try to see where it would fit. And I was noticing that the middle grade seemed too young and the young adult seemed too old. So I decided to start writing in what we call the gap. Which okay. is the, the the end of middle school to the beginning of high school. So it's tweens into teens, like 12, 13, up until like 14, 15. And I felt like that area was really in need of more books because a lot of publishers on, on purpose tell authors not to write those age groups because they don't know what to do with the books. So if you're a kid who reads up and you're 10 or 12, you don't have anything to read. It's yeah. way too old. And they were marketing young adult books more to adults because they enjoy reading them. So I decided to write actually for kids you know, in, a, in a market that you know is, is missing these types of books. So you basically feel a completely, uh, um, a completely like a new niche. Mm -hmm. That's, that's why impressive. I call it the bridging the gap because that's, that's very what. Very good. So now I write. Um, I'll write anything from middle grade all the way. I have um, next next year, the year after, I have a new adult, which is also something that's up and coming. Which is more of a, you're you're on your own, but you're not really an adult adult. So it's sometimes in college or after college that type of thing. So I'm I'm trying to find something for everyone. So I'm bridging the gap like through all of the, the age groups basically. Okay. So looking back at some of your at some of your other books, this is definitely Frozen Time, a very dark turn for you. What uh, what made you want to do uh, go this way for the for the new book? Well, I my first thought when coming up with this book was I was inspired by the idea of just finding a body in the ice or snow. I just <laughs> I just wanted that was kind of the first um, thing, and the idea whoa. yeah the, the idea of the the, the tragic sort of uh, the uh, the childhood. Uh, lost in the ice, the, the friend, was something that I saw on, there was a newspaper clipping on my grandparents' refrigerator that was just this like grainy stark photo of a, of a frozen lake. And I thought from my memory that that was, what, that was one of my sister's friends or something who had, who had lost in the ice. I don't know if it's a real memory or not, or if it's just because I talked to my mom about it recently and she doesn't even know if it's true. But, Whoa. So that kind of stuck with me with the plot as well. But it was really about trying to, to write something that still had sort of, it's still age appropriate sure. thriller, so it really gets you introduced to the to the idea. But I was reading a lot of thrillers and mysteries, and I thought, why not well, give it a I shot? I love the cover. I mean, oh, I you. absolutely love the cover. But let's talk about your other works, because okay. you have a lot of other books. You have uh, The Right Detective, which is now um, uh, three books in. And this is all about a young teen detective um, I mean, uh, um, named uh, Tessa Wright. Her father's also a, 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 a detective, and she solves mysteries with her friends, which is a very cool concept. Uh, where did this one come from? This came from loving Nancy Drew and yep. Babysitter's Club, which is kind of the combination because she has the detective agency. 
I don't know where, I, I, I used to play in a tree house as a kid, or like kind of a fort. Um, not my own, but my friend. So I think that's where that came from. Uh, but it, I, I'd like to create, because I moved around a lot as a kid, I think I like to create these sort of fictional worlds that are kind of ide idealistic or something that I would have liked to grow up in as a kid with friendships that you carry throughout your life. So. I think that's where that comes into play for that, this huge group of solid friends. And I like, I like writing friendship groups too. So, and, and of course I'm a, a mystery lover, so that's why I wanted to write. Who is Tessa Wright? Tell us about her. Tessa is a super sleuth. She's Ooh. smart. She's, she's a star in the track uh, team. And she's also eventually starts doing cross country as well. So she's, she's a sporty person. She is uh, a great friend to her to her three best friends. And she is known in town as someone who, if there's the, a mystery to be solved, she's the one you go to. And she, she has a great uh, connection with her parents. Uh, her mom is a, a physician, her dad's a, a detective, and she tries to follow in his footsteps. So I see her as like a future FBI agent or something. She's, like, she's really, really strong-willed. Um, so what kinds of mysteries does she solve? I'm guessing not like ice, not um, like bodies in ice. No, she, she's not doing <laughs> murders yet. <laughs> yet. <laughs> yet. Um, but she she does anything from something that might happen in school, where she, you know, a simple mystery with uh, trying to find who dropped something in a locker or like a, a hidden crush or something, or something that might be going on within her town because she, she loves her town of Greenville Heights. It's really, really important to her. So she, she loves making sure that that the, the businesses thrive and that the, the town is still the same great place that she grew up in. So she does a lot of mysteries that are incorporated with the local townspeople and the, the local businesses. So you'll see that in like the second book. And then the third book is uh, a haunted Halloween theme. So she, she actually does some investigating in, in a haunted house to figure out what's going on there. Now, is Tessa the kind of uh, detective who is just always on top of things, or is she really stumped by some of the mysteries? Both. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. Um, she, some things just come to her very, very quickly. She she has a sort of a process that she goes through where she, she tries to figure it out, but she uses her friends and their knowledge as well. So she she's smart enough to, to, to know what, in general, how to, how to go through a mystery and an investigation, but then she also uses the tools that she has around her. So she's she's pretty uh, street savvy, but she also has a smart streak in her too. Okay. Um, her friends, who are they? There is her best friend, Riley, who's also on the track team with her. She's, she's uh, likes astronomy, so that's another little tidbit about her. And there's also um, Skylar, who is their VP. And by the way, Riley is the secretary of the, the, the detective agency. They all have, the, yeah, of course, Tessa's the president. They, they all kind of have their roles. Right? Yes, yes. Um, so Skylar is the VP. She's very um, outspoken and um, boy crazy in the first book. And she is on the dance team. They call it the Falconettes because they are the Greenville Heights Falcons, so they call them Falconettes. And then the, her other friend is Leah, who is artistic. And she does things, I mean, anything from making her own Halloween costume to painting murals and things. And she is the uh, treasurer. And she always wants to, she, her big thing is trying to bling out the treehouse with a, an HVAC system because they get cold in the winter and hot in the summer. So that's kind of her thing. Uh, they, they don't get paid for their cases, but they do accept donations for their pizza budgets. So it's really, really important. I really, I mean, really key. I mean, like you, you, you cannot solve mystery without pizza. Yeah, right. essential. I'd say key, key. <laughs> now, why give Tessa the team? Why not just make her like a solo character? 
Well, I couldn't even imagine. She There are some instances where she has to take on a case on her own. And okay. the first one, you'll find that too. Uh, but there's something about teamwork that I like to write about in stories, whether it be through sports or something like a club, that I think is a really important thing to, to teach kids. So I love writing diverse ca cast of characters, some you know, tertiary, sometimes look closer to the story. And I think too, what makes it fun about having friendship, solid friendships like that is that someone like Tessa can go to her friends if she, she has a problem, she can ask them their advice where she doesn't necessarily have to always go to her parents. I think there's that, that connection that she has with her friendship and they can solve things on their own. Okay. Uh, when it comes to writing these books, you have to uh, like map it all out to avoid getting kind of caught in a corner. Nope, I don't. You don't I'm, map I'm it a out. pantser. I don't. I don't oh, map anything wow. out. Even even the thriller mysteries. I just I write like I didn't know who the murderer was in this when I first started writing it. It just kind of came. So I just I I I've had times where I write things a little like I'll write a scene because I know it's important and I have it in my head. But then I'll when I continue writing chronologically, I'll like oh wait that doesn't fit. It, it kind of kind of stops me a little bit in my tracks because I'm used to just going with the flow and writing chapter one, chapter, it's always chronologically and I don't really have a plan. So do you have to do a lot of back and forth? Not really. Wow. I mean, it, I, I map it out after that. Like even with the football uh, book I wrote, I make sure that it's a full season. So I map out the games or with Frozen in Time, They ha usually my books happen within a span of like two or three months. Okay. So I need to, to make sure that the, the the actual weeks make sense. Yeah, of course. Um, yeah, so you're not, you know, especially if you're dealing with like a holiday or something. So, but overall, I don't really go back and do too much developmentally after the fact. But if I, if I, something does get, you know, kind of lost or something, I, I have beta readers that help me out with that. Okay, beta readers, <laughs> yeah. because I feel like this is a very essential thing to have. What is some of the best advice that they've given you in regards to your books? Beta readers, one of my favorite things that beta readers do is I ask them when they're reading to tell me what their mindset is while they're reading it. Yeah. So if they'll say like, like even if you're reading a murder mystery, like who do you think's doing it now? That way you can kind of see, you know, are the red herrings working or are you just like completely solve the entire thing on oh, your own? Oh, okay. Uh, or, you know, how do you feel about this character? And they'll be like, I don't like what she's doing now. Or, you know, and that doesn't necessarily, it's not necessarily a bad thing. All your characters don't have to, you don't have to connect with every single part of every character. But it helps to kind of see what a, a you know your average reader is doing because I'm going to have my opinion as a writer, but I'm not. I need to know how it's going to affect you. Are you are you getting that same feel for it that I, that I do while I'm writing it? Okay. Uh, what got you into writing in the first place? Uh, I've kind of always been writing. I did, I realized that when I went through my old journals as a kid. I used to do like summer journals of what happens boringly over the summer. But uh, I was pre-med bio in undergrad, and then I went to law school. So I kind of been doing sort of <laughs> wow. nonfiction writing, and That's I did a diverse background. I, I like this. I know I, I did like law, the law journal and stuff like that um, that I wrote. But I always wanted to write a little bit more, and I was published uh, through an anthology with Simon and Schuster, where because I'm a runner, so I was I did a, a writing piece um, on running, and from there it kind of gave me the push to try to write a novel and I did it and I was able to do it in a few weeks and I really really enjoyed it so I said let's give it a shot I got a small press contract and then I decided to leave them and do my own thing because I wanted to write in the gap so that's kind of how it all went okay and is that how you founded um, uh, Link Press yes okay because I felt like um, I needed in order to really do what 
I wanted to as a writer and, and fulfill those goals, I really had to kind of go outside of what your average publishing shtick is, I guess I should say, the trends of the publishing industry. Sure, I was willing yeah. to go out there and kind of strike out on my own. And that's. And is that just you right now, or do you have other other writers? No, it's just me, and I have my hands full as it is, because I, I, well, I, <laughs> I put out three books in a novella last year, and oh, then this, this year I only did one, uh, because this one was... It was different than all the others, yeah. so it, it needed a little bit more extra attention. But uh, I have a book coming out in February, which is another right detective book, which is Valentine's theme. And then after that, I have the new adult one. That um, so I'm trying to cover all my bases, maybe slow it down a little bit. <laughs> I mean, three books and a novella in one year is kind of a lot, you know. Yeah, I didn't get a lot of sleep, and I don't think my the, the, I have a, it's not just me doing it too I have a team of people who help me and they were all just exhausted too so. I'm sure they were yeah. <laughs> they're probably like please slow down yeah. take a vacation like, I think something. that you should just wait a couple of years before you put that other one out could, could you do like one book a year maybe yeah. or something yeah. that's a good idea <laughs> uh, how did you uh, meet uh, the beta readers it's a good question um, some uh, mostly through my old publisher, actually. So we all kind of had the same idea where we wanted to like do our own thing. And so, yeah, the, you kind of, you mesh with certain people and then you kind of, you come up with a, a trust level with them. Yep. And even if you don't necessarily write the same genre or age group, whatever it is, that you, you still get, if you have a good writer who's reading what you want to read and they enjoy reading, then you can find some really, really great feedback from them. Excellent. Oh. Well, Kelly, I thank you so much for talking to me. I really appreciate it. But where do folks go if, if, if they want to learn more about you and get the books? Okay, so um, I, I'm going to think about what my, my uh, email address is. But, <laughs> uh, but it's um, authorklswantaylor, gmail.com. And I also have um, a website, which I can't give you the address for right now because it's really complicated. But, but I'm <laughs> all the over the internet. folks. Link in the description. Google Kelly Swan Taylor. I'm all over Goodreads and Amazon. and. and yep. Maggie Kozel brings things to a close with her book, My Legs Are Crying. Maggie's book is based on her work with emotional-based illnesses. We go into what they are and how this work impacted healthcare. Hey everyone, well we are wrapping things up here at the Rhode Island Author Expo. My final interview for this event is with Maggie Kozel for her new book, My Legs Are Crying. And just to start things off, that's a great name for a book. I'm kind of curious as to where this one came from. Um, well, it came from the nature of the illnesses that I write okay. about in the book. Okay. Um, but actually, I thought about it. It came to me while I was walking my dog one day. That's that's. <laughs> it's always like it the most, the, uh, the most like random places, <laughs> yes, right? Yeah, but um, but it refers to the fact that um, these kids that I, I've written the book about these types of disorders that affect uh, children and teenagers. Um, they're really started in the emotional brain and they're sending really misfiring uh, uh, signals out to the, to the body um, saying that your legs hurt or your stomach hurts or, and, and so uh, the child or the teen is actually experiencing pain there because their emotional brain is overriding their thinking brain and is telling them your legs hurt. Um, wow. You know, uh, reading, yeah. uh, reading like about your book and what it's about, I had never heard of emotional-based illnesses. Uh, so but, I like a little more about them, how yes, that happened? Yes, yes. And, and join the club, because the reason I became so passionate about this 
is because um, I was a, a pediatrician in, in regular primary care practice for three decades um, and saw lots of school-related anxiety, the Monday morning tummy aches kind of thing. <laughs> And I had never heard of any of this. Sure. And then I took a position as the medical director of the inpatient med psych unit at uh, Hasbro Children's Hospital, where they deal with these kinds of illnesses. And what I found there just sort of astounded me that um, the, the neuroscience, the current neuroscience, uh, clearly shows that these, um, these kids are not faking. They're not making things up. They're not manipulating the adults around them. They are experiencing the symptoms that they say they are experiencing, um, even though there's no um, observable reason for them to be having these symptoms. So, um, so what my reaction to that as a pediatrician, who had been teach, who had been treating school-related anxiety for three decades, was. How did I not know this? How did I never hear this? Because I, I saw so many kids with uh, the headaches, the stomach aches that kept them out of school. And I, I, I thought they were good kids. I wasn't judging them, but I also didn't think they were really having those symptoms. Right, because like you always assume, oh, like a little Tommy just wants to like get out of his math class right, or something. Right, right, right. Like it's manipulative. And um, huh. kids actually aren't as manipulative as you might think around <laughs> these kind of symptoms. And so I was... I felt um, regret that I had practiced so many years under the impression that these kids really were sort of making up these symptoms, not because they're bad kids, but because they were terrified of going to school. Exactly, yeah. So it was Just like kids a, being kids. Right, so they were looking for an excuse, but that is not the case. Um, they are experiencing the symptoms, and what struck me was that all this information is, it, um, among, that's come out of neuroscience in the last couple of decades and that psychiatrists and psychologists are well aware of wasn't making it out to the community, wasn't making it out to the pediatricians, to the teachers, to parents. Um, and so, so it's all, it was all there on Thurber's curve and not, not making it out to the rest of us. So um, that's where um, I became uh, passionate about getting the word out, and, and not only to pediatric providers, but to teachers, educators, uh, and to the parents who are going, who are keep bringing their kids into the office saying, she's not a liar, she's a great kid, but she's got this belly pain, um, and now we know what to do. It makes all the difference in the world. So all those times I told my mom I was too sick to go to school, I was actually really sick. Well, it depends. Or I was lying. <laughs> or were you in high school? Because that, uh, so yeah. that can be a little different. So, so, <laughs> so these kinds of illnesses are more for like little kids. Um, no, I shouldn't have. I uh, no, that might have been a poor choice of words gotcha, on my part. Gotcha. But I think as the closer you get to an adult brain, yeah. the m more you are likely to um, come up with some factitious symptom. But, but the. The kids that we saw, and again, this applies to young children, applies to teenagers as well. That that was a different thing. It was unconscious. They they would tell you they love school, uh, they're good kids, and um, but everybody around them is saying, well, there's really nothing wrong with your stomach. This is fascinating. It is fascinating. It really is. Yeah, so yeah. so when you started get, uh, getting uh, the board out, this sounds like a real like um, a game changer for medicine. It it really is. It's a game changer for uh, for. Uh, 
people of all professions in the community that deal with children and teens. And in fact, uh, one of my former colleagues, a psychiatrist uh, from that same program, uh, is working with me to, so we're going to kind of tag team as pediatrician and psychiatrist uh, to help get the word the word out. So cool. Thank uh, you. So what made you want to write a book about this? What was sort of the goal here? So um, it was interesting. Um, again, it was because I was so I was stunned sure. that I I was um, I didn't know this at a time in my right. career when I really needed it, and nor did any of my colleagues, as far as I was aware. Um, so uh, I I just felt really passionate about getting it out, and also because if you don't address these kind of symptoms when they're small they can become extremely hard to treat. It can go on for years, become chronic, um, and there's no need for that. We sure. have the information. Uh, How do you treat a, a, a condition like this? So um, it's, it's multifaceted. It, it, it takes a, a, a strong integration between uh, pediatrics and behavioral health. Okay. Um, and we, we all have to be talking to each other and staying on the same page. Um, the loss of function in children is usually not going to school. That's okay. like their main job, and and that's <laughs> usually what they uh, what they are unable to do in, sure. the, in these situations. So uh, one of the things is to the basic fundamental principle is still to restore function, meaning get them back in school. Uh, but you really have to get a lot of parental buy-in for that too. Uh, but then in addition. And this is what is really the game changer. Okay. You need to be able to look that kid in the eye and say, I know you're in pain. I know you are not a liar. But what I need you to know is that this is the your emotional brain tricking you into thinking there's something very wrong in your body. Um, and so we're gonna give you that power back over your emotional brain so that you can get back to school and deal with your whatever your worries are in a much more direct way, not feel your emotions through your body. Now you mentioned that if this is untreated, it can become um, uh, chronic. How mm -hmm. bad are we talking about? Are we talking about like, like neurological damage? So, so what we're talking about, the kids that we saw at Hasbro were very, very ill. Some of them had been, let's say, in, in wheelchairs for uh, a year and not been in school for two years um, and no um, medical explanation for it at all and had just gone from specialist to specialist to specialist um, so it can get very severe but if we're talking about the third grader who just wants to be perfect in school yeah. um, and she's afraid that she can't be and so every Monday morning she gets this tummy ache maybe she's even throwing up Jeez. and we can that is so treatable especially once you get the parents on board once you say your daughter's really going to be all right we just have to do these things um, and you tell the child I believe you I believe you're not lying then um, they, it is such a treatable disorder at that age and that's where we have to get it. I'm curious when you first started telling uh, the rest of uh, the medical community about this, what was the response? Were they like, oh wow this explains everything or oh sure? Well so um, it, my first experience would be when I like we'd have uh, these patients come to the unit sure, sure. and they'd 
uh, come in dire straits and they'd leave, they'd walk out and they're, you know, yeah. with their parents and with a, a skip in their <laughs> walk. And <clears throat> it was such a huge difference. And I would have to call back, I'd have to call back the referring pediatrician because these ki kids came from all over the country. Um, and so uh, I'd have to call back the pediatricians and, and the first things I'd, I'd hear would be like, oh boy, that kid just had her parents wrapped around her fingers and da 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 da. And I couldn't get too judgy about it because that's where my mindset was before I ever experienced this integrated med psych care. Um, and so I would try to uh, gently uh, move that mindset yeah. uh, a little bit. But there again, that's I, I knew these pediatricians wanted to do the very best job they of could. Course, yeah. And I was in exactly their same situation. And I think again, between myself and the psychiatrist that I worked with, we just became so passionate about just let, let's get the, this message out to the frontline people. Yeah. Um, and it could have a huge difference, especially now that we know pediatric mental health is just so um, so painful, yeah. so widespread. Um, we really want to have the best possible skills at our disposal. Uh, Has this uh, gotten worse in recent years? Because I feel like with kids, all, all the stress they're under and the peer pressure. So I think um, school-related anxiety has definitely yeah. gotten worse. Yeah. I don't know, um, you know, as far as the kids who became so severely ill that they ended up in our inpatient unit, I don't know. I honestly don't know if that um, is getting worse. I would suspect that it has just because there's so many things that are scaring the heck out of um, young people right now. I mean, um, that uh, I'm, I'm suspecting that it has gotten worse, but I've got no numbers. Fair to, enough. To prove that. Okay. So, along with having this new book out, you also have a panel here at the Expo called yes. "Listening to Your Hearts, Lungs, and Stories." Yes. What's it about? Oh, okay. So it's it's not about the book. <laughs> that would be a little bit self-serving, I think. I was trying to think, could I just show a, a picture or something? Here's <laughs> the book, buy it, right. the end. But no, um, this is more about uh, the writing process from, from my standpoint, uh, standpoint. And I'm kind of tag-teaming with uh, the woman who I first met as my writing instructor at Brown, Lauren Surratt. And so I'm going to talk a little bit about um, how I figured out as an adult learner how to write because I had no idea how to do it. Um, and then, and she's going to talk about how, from her perspective, how you sort of, I don't want to say teach somebody how to write. I don't think she would use that language, <laughs> but, um, but how, how you help somebody develop the skills that they're going to need to, to write a story. What made you want to write in the first place? Ooh, that's a, that's a I know, right? <laughs> so, How much time we got here? Okay, cool. So, um, when, after I had been um, in pediatrics for about three, uh, three, two and a half, three decades, I, I, like many of my colleagues, was really burning out. And I think sure. that was the absolute low point of um, healthcare payments and not being able to see poor kids or just eating the cost. And, and we, were, we were all burning out. And so um, I took a break, I took a hiatus, and I decided I was going to write commentary. Um, and, and I did, and I had a whole 
whole lot of success at it. Um, and I mean, much more than I expect, a whole lot for me. <laughs> yeah, I guess they, that's a relative thing. They actually read it, oh my God. <laughs> exactly, like why are you printing this? Don't you have anything better to print? No, I, but uh, I, I, was, I was much more successful than I thought I would be. It felt really important. I got uh, involved in activism for healthcare reform. Um, and then I finally thought, you know what, I'm just gonna, I'm gonna put this all down in a book. So that was my first book. Um, and uh, and I also thought it was my last book uh, until um, <laughs> boom. until I uh, yeah came across this experience. Is this book more for the medical community or is it also for parents too? I think that for this for us to have any impact, it has to be a combined effort of pediatric providers, educators, um, including educators who make policy. And, um, and, and parents who are dealing with these kind of issues at home. I think, I believe, it's accessible to all those yep. uh, groups. Yeah. So what is next for you? What is next for me? Another book, perhaps? <laughs> I don't know. I, you know, I, I was absolutely 100% sure after my first book that right. that was my only yeah. book. <laughs> and, and now I'm saying, I will, no, I'm not going to do this again. But I, I don't know. I, I guess it's, uh, I don't think I'd write another book unless something came along that I felt as passionate about. I feel like to do this much hard work, you really have to, you really have to feel it. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, Maggie, thank you so much for uh, um, talking to me. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Uh, and for the folks at home, you go to MaggieCozoMD.com. It's all there. Get this book, My Legs Are Crying. And definitely get her first book, The Color of Atmosphere, One Doctor's Journey in and out of medicine. And certainly looking forward to us talking again. Thank you very much. It's a great conversation. And with that, we bring this episode to a close. Thanks for listening. And if you haven't already, check us out on Facebook under Citywide Blackout and Twitter and Instagram under Citywide Max. You can catch this and all your favorite episodes on your favorite podcast platform. And new episodes are added every week, as well as on Boston Free Radio every Saturday at 10 p.m. You get at me at citywidemax at yahoo.com if you want to suggest a guest, submit your music, or just drop us a line. Thanks for tuning in, and I'll see you next time.